0: Hello, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt Liebau, the president of Yankee Institute. And I am joined today by two very special guests. And they are David Fleming, Yankee Institute's own director of policy and research, and the one and only Megan Portfolio, our manager of research and analysis. And they are here today to discuss. The new study they have authored coming out very soon called Failure by Mandate, Connecticut and 830G. And we are thrilled to be keeping it all in the Yankee family. Welcome David and Megan.
1: Thanks Carol, happy to be here.
0: Thanks Carol. And so we are delighted to have two members of the Yankee Strike Force and we're going to talk a little bit about the new study. You can find it on our site and I think some of you will be receiving it in the mail. So what can we say besides read it, learn it, love it, live it? Um, David and Megan, thanks for your work on this. Let's talk a little bit about housing. And I think the first thing that's important for all of us to understand is what exactly is the problem um, that led us to want to put out this paper on housing policy in Connecticut?
1: Well, I, I think it's clear that all of America right now is in the middle of a housing crisis, and some states are affected more than others, and I think Connecticut is affected more than most.
0: And so the idea is what, housing is too expensive?
1: Uh, generally speaking, yes. And just, just to give you some some data, hard data on that, uh, in, in 2019, uh, the median sale price uh, of a Connecticut home was about $260,000. Uh, and the median household income was about eighty-seven thousand dollars. And two years later, uh, that median household income had fallen by seven percent, while the average sale price of a home actually increased uh, during that time. So I think it's pretty clear that there is a very big problem.
0: And you know, we know that some of the the sort of beginning of this was in the nineteen seventies, uh, which you know was a decade, Megan, notwithstanding your love of disco. Uh, a lot of bad stuff blossomed. I mean, you know, disco music, polyester clothing, a lot of issues. We had some of this um, with this idea that there was too much growth and too much, um, you know, too much of it too fast. It seems like in New York, there were some physical constraints building out because there was a certain amount of density because of commute times into the city. And then in Los Angeles, you have the mountains, which, you know, Also, pose certain physical constraints. In other places, you just had a sort of feeling that there shouldn't be, what, so much density and certain zoning constraints, physical constraints uh, sprang up. Why did we get into this problem?
1: Well, I I would say that, uh, well, Meg actually did some of the the research on this, but uh, just the the general understanding uh, was that there was this idea that we that America was was growing too quickly uh, in terms of urban uh, in terms of sprawl and in terms of suburbs, and we we had to have some uh, oversight from either at the state level or the or the national level uh, in terms of making sure that it didn't get didn't get out of control uh, in terms of where the where the housing was coming from and where where it was going to be placed.
0: So obviously, you know, these ch- Connecticut was not immune from these challenges. And I mean, neither was anyone else in America. And so what happened after that?
2: Well, because the state of Connecticut is it knows how to solve every single problem in the world. Um, back in the late 80s, Governor O'Neill put together a, a commission. He called it the Blue Ribbon Commission, and they were tasked with figuring out, you um, or doing a study on affordability and come up with strategies to, to tackle that issue. So we, we've done this exercise decades ago, and we've made no movement. We've made no
0: movement toward making our housing more affordable. Correct. But in our efforts, we had this blue ribbon commission, and they came up with the 830G mandate. Am I Correct.
2: Oh, yes, they came up with the mandate, and they also came up with really the only solution to solve the problem is to just throw a ton of money at the situation,
0: ok. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we know our listeners are waiting with bated breath to have us walk through this whole thing. So, you know, like we we don't want spoilers, just like in an action movie, no spoilers. But first, let's tell everybody who doesn't already know about eight thirty g. Drum roll. Who's going to take this one? Don't everyone fight. okay? David.
1: So 830G was really the attempt by Connecticut state government to really uh, implement a a mandate over all Connecticut's 169 towns to take control of of that. What had previously been only a local responsibility and put it under state hands. And I would say that it was uh, it was not much of a success at all.
0: Okay, and so 830 G was dealing with low income housing. Is that correct?
1: Yes, the idea of of affordable housing is somewhat of a, of a misnomer because in many in many towns across the state, uh, there there is uh, plenty of affordable housing. It's just that the state doesn't con- doesn't consider it affordable because it's not deed restricted, and in, in which the homeowner or the the uh, landlord uh, is forced to. Uh, Have a restriction in terms of what the rent that they can rent out that affordable home for.
0: This is a little ridiculous. I just want to mark this.
2: Yes, and they don't include anything. It's not anything that's affordable. It's only like what the government tells you is affordable. Like um, it has to be like a government-funded project, or as David said, deed restricted. So if I decided to build an in-law apartment on my my land, and I want to charge an affordable rent for it that's not going to count in, the, in, in, the, in the, the, the data for affordable housing. So the state won't even count it.
0: So theoretically, half a the town could have properties renting that low-income people could afford to rent. But if it isn't in the deed or it otherwise doesn't qualify under the certain specifications set out in 830G, it wouldn't count toward what is considered affordable housing.
2: And the government's actually been the state's been toying with um, doing like a, a stick and a carrot thing. If, if, if you don't have the affordable housing, they want to they want to punish these municipalities. So they may actually have a stock of affordable housing, but it doesn't count. And the government has floated ideas of punishing them with, with withholding infrastructure funds and other types of you know funds to the town. So they're actually, you know, certain towns could meet the requirements theoretically but on paper. They don't. And then they will be punished.
0: Okay. Well, that just makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Okay. So <laughs>
2: so let's talk about
0: inclusionary zoning because that sounds so nice because we all want to be inclusive. I mean, we do, but in theory is not the same as practice. So what is inclusionary zoning, David? And um, why is it a failed model?
1: Well, when I first started researching 830G, I was banging my head against the wall, trying to understand the whole process and all the ins and outs, which is, it would really take about 12 lawyers to, I think, figure out the entire thing and be able to explain it thoroughly, but I'm not going to do that today. I, I just, I when, when, I guess the breakthrough came when I was looking into other uh, housing models across other states and realizing that Connecticut had basically just seen uh, several of these models that were adopted in the 1970s and decided, hey, that, that looks like something that we might we might want to do, despite not seeing a a record of success. Uh, they, they, the earliest of these, of these uh, models it was adopted in, in New Jersey in 1975, uh, and Connecticut 14 years later, uh, despite any evidence uh, to the contrary, they t- decided to emulate this policy. So it wasn't it wasn't a unique model for Connecticut that was carefully tailored. It was it was more or less just, oh, let's see what New Jersey is doing, and let's let's make that our own.
0: Oh, so kind of like when, we do with California and the environmental laws.
1: Exactly. Yes, we 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 copy we copy other other states and and see where it goes from there. Uh, so it, once you, once it's clear that you're just taking this model that doesn't really have much evidence in support of it, it's not, it's not really much of a question of whether or not it's going to work. It's when it's going to fail. And I think we're, we're in this decade in the past ten years, we're really seeing that it is failing really hard. Uh, yeah. And just just so everyone. Uh, understands what inclusionary zoning is it's really it, it's the idea that the state should incentivize uh developers uh to build affordable housing uh at, at a rate uh that, that, that they're built at, at a similar rate that they're building market rate housing uh, and then so basically these two these two markets uh develop in conjunction with each other but in many ways they, they both uh, uh cause the housing crisis because there is this this path of severely um, uh, rent controlled uh, housing while at the same time the price of a market rate house uh, goes up because the developer has to make a profit because they're, they're selling or renting out these homes that aren't turning a profit
0: so you guys are the policy wonks step in here and correct me if i get it wrong but in essence it distorts uh the housing market um because being rational economic actors a big people who, nothing wrong with this, get into building housing because they want to earn a living, they want to make a profit, they want to do well in life. If these people tell them, you can only build 10 housing units as long as seven of them are for profit and three of them are deed restricted, affordable housing, then what they do is they make the seven that are for profit more expensive than they would other otherwise be if all 10 were for profit. And so as a result, the seven that are for profit are more expensive than they would otherwise be because they have to ring the same profit out of seven that they would otherwise be getting out of 10. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. And it's really uh, in terms of it, it, it impacts the entire housing market, but it really impacts most severely those, uh, those homes that are uh, for the middle income and lower income households. It's really not so much, you know, that the people who are buying mansions, it's, it's the, the most distortionary effects are in, impacting uh, the middle income uh, Connecticut folks.
0: Because people who are really low income will, you know, be eligible for low income, affordable housing. Right. They'll be able to, you know, if it's available. Um, they'll be able yes. if it's available, and then people who are very well to do will always be able to find housing because they've got plenty of money. It's the people in the middle because now the seven housing units of the ten we were talking about are going to be more expensive than they otherwise would have been, and yet the people in the middle don't qualify for the affordable housing, so they're just in a mess altogether. And then because there's no guarantee that the low income house households are going to be able to find housing right away because this 30 percent number or whatever number it is that the people have just laid out is probably not enough. And because market principles have been ruled out, which tend to solve a lot of these problems, they're out of luck, too. Right. So there really isn't an adequate supply for them. So everybody's in a mess. There's not enough housing for affordable. The middle has been priced out. And the only people who are left who can get along are the people on the high end who can always get along. But even for them, it's more expensive than it would otherwise be. So what is this even solved? Exactly. Okay. So obviously, the state needs to look into doing some things differently as it moves forward. Megan, can you tell us a few of the things that reformers should consider
2: The first thing I'd like to see the state do is actually do something helpful. Um, One of the problems with the housing is just the cost to develop and and build. um, About almost 25% of the cost is due to like burdensome and costly regulations imposed by the state. I'd like to see them. Conduct an audit on every single one of these regulations. Do we need it? What's it cost? And if if we don't need it, let let's let's cut these regulations down. You know, obviously, I don't want to see anything that would affect safety, but there's things in there that you you require, you know, the developers to do, and it's costing them, you know, ninety thousand dollars per every you know house. So I like to see them, you know, clean up the, the regulations. The towns could also help help with this also, um, especially if they have sewer and water already built. Um, those are like prime locations for fourplexes, which should just be allowed as right. I think if you, if you already have the infrastructure there, why not build there? And, and you can tell the builders, I mean, you can tell them what you want built. I mean, you don't have to have some ugly monstrosity built there. You can have it fit in with the with the neighborhood. And then that would also be um, a lot better for the environment. So the environmentalists will be happy with that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, um, if I want to build my in-law apartment on my land, that should count. Like, that should be encouraged. I mean, why the town should allow you, as long as, I mean, I don't build like a mid-rise in your backyard. But if you could have like a nice cute cottage that you can rent out or even sell, what? why not why not let them do that why not let people utilize the land the way they want to use it and then we've got a lot you've got a whole bunch of mixed use properties out there um a lot of retail like retail unfortunately is dying i mean we could utilize a lot of like the malls or in vacant commercial areas rezone it and that would be a great area you've got parking you've got the infrastructure there you've got your water electrical i mean there's things that the can do their at their level to help with this You know, one of the things
0: that I've often thought would be interesting as well is, you know, to allow the same way that everybody has like carbon credits and all these different things that allow people to engage in some sort of carbon trading market. It would be interesting if, for example, one town has affordable housing or wants to invest in more affordable housing and a nearby small town wants to go ahead and pay to let another nearby town develop affordable housing to take care of its affordable housing responsibility. And they could go ahead and work together to take care of those obligations. I don't understand why we can have uh, carbon credits, but we can't have housing credits and things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I live on the north end of a main street in one town, but there's an affordable housing just on the opposite end of the street, but the it's on the other side of the border in another town, that right. why can't that count? Right. And I mean, why can't the housing authority? So the housing authority had an issue. I think the Hearst papers reported this. Half the housing vouchers that are issued aren't even used. So they're literally not being used because one of the problems is they're not mobile. Like Maybe if I have, win, they call it winning the lottery, if I win the lottery for a housing voucher in Bristol, make that more portable so that they can use it elsewhere. Because we're just literally throwing this in the garbage. You know, just some more flexibility, it seems to me, would go a
0: long way in addressing some of these problems. And then finally, um, one of the things that it seems to me um, would take the debate a long way is allowing everyone to be heard and making sure that we make it clear that if there is any kind of discrimination based on protected characteristics, it is prosecuted to the full extent of the law. There is no place for that in any town in Connecticut, in any place in Connecticut. It's illegal. It's immoral. It's wrong. Um, But, you know, just deliberately bringing those issues to the table in an effort to make people afraid to discuss ideas, to be innovative, um, it seems to me is counterproductive, and we ought to try and get away from that in these and discussions. And it's
2: disingenuous. I mean, it, it's gotten to the point where one side is one side will come up with a good idea, and the other side doesn't want to accept that idea because it came from that side, like put, making it seem like the towns and the cities don't want people because of either income or Um, racial or other kind of characteristics. It's just bogus. It's not what's going on. Um,
0: And so, you know, it seems to me that the smartest way to do this is for the states to allow people of goodwill in the towns to take their best shot at working these issues out, because local is always best. Every citizen's voice is proportionately the largest, the closest to home. That's why you always are best advised to solve as many issues as you can at the unit of government that is the closest to you. That's where people are the most accountable, and that's where you have the biggest voice. And that's why at Yankee Institute, we always believe to the extent possible it is best to keep things local. 100%. Um, David, any final thoughts as we get ready to wrap up?
1: Yes, yeah, so well, one thing really came to mind. I, I was reading through some uh some US history, I guess, last night. And one of the one of the things I found was uh Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis dis- described states as being laboratories of democracy. And I guess that term really kind of stuck with me today, and especially as it relates to this study in terms of I think that every one of Connecticut's 169 towns can in some ways be a laboratory of housing. And in that if If something works in one town, the other towns will notice. And if they're not uh, mandated by the state to ignore the the best solutions, then they can really adopt the best policies. And I think that going forward, that's what we should think about.
0: I think that is a wonderful uh, way to end. A little historical allusion there, and let it be noted um, to our friends and podcast listeners that that is how Yankee Institute's director of policy and research spends his free time in the evenings. It is reading American history. You are getting high value for your partnership with Yankee Institute and Megan portfolio. Listen for her uh, on radio, television, media, everywhere, along with our resident historian, David Fleming. And they are the authors of Yankee Institute's most recent study taking on a uh, housing in Connecticut and mentioning some constructive and much needed solutions. That is Failure by Mandate, Connecticut and 830G. You can find that on Yankee Institute's website, which is chock full of amazing content. You should be checking on it all the time, yankeeinstitute.org. And um, will be appearing in your mailbox as well. So please stay tuned for that. Look for David's various uh, pieces of writing and, of course, the Hartford Portfolio, which comes out of Megan Hartford Portfolio every Friday afternoon. As always, we are grateful to you for listening to Why CT Matters. This is Carol Platt, Liebau, president of Yankee Institute. We'll talk with you next time.
2: I'll show
1: you around this place I call home.